Hello and welcome to the July 2023 edition of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, or at least that's what they want you to believe. With every episode that goes by, there's an increasing likelihood that I've been quietly shuffled off into retirement and that this podcast is being entirely generated by AI. I guess the easiest way to tell would probably be if the quality of the intro suddenly improved, so I think you're in safe human hands for now. This episode sees the return of Karina Klimashevsky and Alex Hadanu, who will be joining me later to talk about the gender pensions gap. But first, let's look at some of the other pension stories that have been making the news this month. Back in March, I brought you some proper breaking news when the pensions minister announced delays to the delivery of pensions dashboards. It all went a bit quiet after that, but the minister's now issued an updated statement with more details on the delay. The main headline is that the dashboards legislation will be updated to just set a single overall connection deadline for all schemes of the 31st of October 2026. It's probably best to think of this date as a backstop, as the individual connection dates for schemes are still expected to be earlier than this. These updated staging dates will be set out in guidance, and the DWP is planning to collaborate with the industry later this year before publishing this. The date that dashboards will go live to the public hasn't been announced yet, but the minister did say this could be earlier than October 2026. We think the announcement of a final connection deadline is helpful, and this change could give some additional flexibility for schemes that need it. However, it's still important that schemes continue with their dashboard preparations. TPR have said that they expect all trustees and scheme managers to be getting to grips with their member data, and they shouldn't underestimate the time this will take. PASA have also published some new guidance on good practice approaches to providing value data to pensions dashboards. This guidance is designed for use by both DB and DC schemes, and it covers 20 topics including possible approaches for dealing with issues such as late retirements, underpins, partial retirements and split normal retirement ages. The House of Commons Work and Pensions Committee has published its report on LDI, following its inquiry on the lessons to be learned from the gilt market volatility following last autumn's mini-budget. The report makes a number of recommendations, although it's up to the government, TPR and the FCA to decide which ones should be taken forward. Some of the key recommendations relate to the collection and monitoring of data on LDI, which the committee says is needed to improve the management of systemic risks in the future. They recommend consulting on whether introducing disclosure requirements on the use of LDI in pension schemes would help to improve standards of governance, and suggest that the data collected could include the maximum leverage allowed in the LDI funds in which the scheme is invested, the type of LDI they invest in, compliance with minimum resilience levels, and data on asset allocations. The committee also recommended considering whether the use of LDI could be restricted for example based on a test related to a trustee board's ability to understand and manage the risks involved. Perhaps the most eye-catching recommendation here is that the DWP and TPR should pause their existing plans for a new DB funding regime. I already mentioned last time that the new regulations and code of practice have been pushed back from October 2023 to March 2024, but whether this latest intervention leads to further delays remains to be seen. Right, I'm going to talk about a court case now, but first I should stress that I'm absolutely not a lawyer. A bit of background first. So, between 1997 and 2016, many schemes contracted out of SERPs or the state's second pension using the reference scheme test method. I'd probably describe this as complicated, but not as complicated as what we had before 1997. GMPs, anybody? 
Now, the benefits provided by these schemes had to pass a minimum quality test, and if there were any rule amendments that affected the relevant benefits, the scheme actuary had to confirm that these amendments didn't affect the scheme's ability to pass the test. This confirmation was known as a Section 37 certificate. And now to that court case. The High Courts ruled that if there were any relevant rule amendments made during this period where a Section 37 certificate wasn't provided, these amendments would be invalid and void, even if they didn't adversely affect benefits. The Pensions Press is reporting that this will have far-reaching implications that could cause additional work or difficulties for schemes looking to secure benefits in the insurance market, and lawyers are suggesting that trustees may want to review past amendments to check whether they were appropriately certified. However, it's still early days on this, and it's entirely possible that this case will be appealed. The DWP's published its scheduled review of the transfer regulations that were first introduced in November 2021. Just as a reminder, these regulations were intended to combat scams and introduce the requirement for trustees to check whether red flags or amber flags are present. The DWP's review concludes that the original policy intent remains appropriate, and in general the regulations are the way to deliver that. However, they do recognise the concerns raised by the industry around incentives and overseas investments, which I mentioned back in August last year, and they'll be doing more work on this to see if changes can be made without undermining the policy intent. The Continuous Mortality Investigation has published its latest set of mortality projections, CMI 2022. 2022 was a year in which England and Wales continued to experience excess mortality following very high mortality in 2020 and 2021 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Compared to the last pre-pandemic year, which was 2019, mortality was around 14% higher in 2020, 9% higher in 2021 and 6% higher in 2022. As expected, the CMI have put a 25% weighting on the data for 2022 in this year's model. This reflects the view that, unlike the prior two years, 2022 may be at least partially predictive of future experience. We estimate that a typical DB scheme could see a reduction in liabilities of up to 3% as a result of adopting these latest projections, although that does depend a lot on where you're starting from, and in some cases it could be much less significant. And finally, Aeon's Wealth Insights Investment Conference is coming up later this year. We have events taking place in Dublin on the 12th and 13th of September, and in London on the 8th and 9th of November. Aeon's business and investment leaders will be joined by leading industry commentators to host a combination of presentations, interactive workshops and networking opportunities. If you're interested in attending one of these conferences, please check out the registration link in the show notes. I've also included links to a couple of recent webinars that you can also check out if you weren't able to catch them live. The first one looks at TPR's annual funding statement for DB schemes with a particular focus on alternative endgames. Then the second one features my guest from the last episode, Rebecca Peake, and takes a closer look at the results from our member options survey. And if you'd like more information on this or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. Right, it's time to talk about the gender pensions gap. And to help with this, I'm really pleased to welcome back two returning guests, Karina Klimashevsky and Alex Hadanu. Just in case anyone doesn't remember you from last time you were on, shall we do some quick intros? 
Yeah, sure. Hi, Ricky. Great to be back. Um, so my name is Karina Klimaszewski. I'm a partner advising clients on their pension strategy day to day, um, but I'm particularly interested in, in member engagement and I head up Aon's Gender Pensions Gap Specialist team. Hi, Ricky. I'm Alex Haddenley. I'm a senior consultant in the retirement business. And like Karina, I also advise corporate clients on how to manage and optimise their pension strategy in both the DB and DC space. And I'm also part of the Gender Pensions Gap Specialist team. Great. So when you were on together last September, we talked about Pensions Awareness Week and you did briefly touch on the Gender Pensions Gap as part of that discussion. What brings you back to us today? So the last time we were on, Karina mentioned the Gender Pensions Gap as one of the important and under the radar areas to be aware of in the pension space. And it turns out that Karina was right, as we're now seeing the Gender Pensions Gap becoming a real hot topic in the market. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Um, I'm not sure if I can take all the credit, um, but this topic has definitely been getting attention and becoming a lot more prominent in the news. Um, so we're seeing a big increase in the number of articles on gender pensions gap in the press. And even it's even spreading to non-pension publications like The Guardian and BBC News. So given it's still quite a new topic, could you just give us a brief explanation of what the gender pensions gap is and what causes it? Sure. So the Department of Work and Pensions define this as the inequality in male and female pension provision. I like to think of this as the difference in retirement outcomes between men and women. Whilst a simple enough definition, it can actually be quite difficult to measure in practice, as people will take different forms of benefit in retirement. For example, should you measure the gap in, the, in terms of the value of benefits or the income you can get, or should you look at the gap in contribution rates? There are also a variety of different factors that can, can influence the gender pensions gap. But the main factors for our, from our perspective are salary, contribution rates and working patterns, which are things like people taking career breaks and also working part time. So you mentioned the gender pensions gap has been getting a lot more attention recently. Do you have any ideas on what's driving that? So whilst this is something that both trustees and corporates are looking at, we're really seeing a lot of interest coming from the corporate side with this topic really flying up corporate agendas. I think there's a few different reasons for that. Firstly, it's very much a talent-driven market at the moment, with one of the key corporate objectives being attracting and retaining talent. Most of the people we work with are in the rewards, benefits or HR space, and so they're acutely aware of the difficulty recruiting new talent and want to ensure that they provide employees with the support that they need to ensure they can retain that talent. Linked to that, there's also an increase in focus from both trustees and corporates on improving member outcomes for individuals. There's a lot more research in the marketplace now showing that the financial impact on members can be pretty stark. Yeah, and carrying on taking a step out of pensions, um, gender pay gap reporting has been in the UK for a number of years now, but there's a new pay transparency directive coming in across the EU uh, that goes a lot further of what we currently do in the UK, requiring individuals to be able to access information on the pay gap for specific roles. So it's just showing that there's more and more focus and legislation coming in on the DEI space and gender in particularly uh, one area of focus at the moment. Yeah, so could you see similar legislation to what we've already got for gender pay gap reporting coming in to address the gender pension gap? It's definitely a possibility, um, although hard to say with any certainty at this stage. 
the, the pensions minister did mention wanting to put in place a standard definition of gender pensions gap and gender pensions gap reporting at some stage. So we assume that could be similar to what we currently have for the pay gap in the UK. But at this stage, we don't have any more details. So what I would say is watch this space. Thanks, Karina. Alex, how big an issue would you say the gender pensions gap is right now? Well, I'm obviously biased as a specialist in this area, but for me, I really see this as a huge issue. The majority of members will not be aware the gender pension gap even exists or that they should be doing anything about it. The latest DWP research found that between 2018 and 2022, the gender pensions gap in private pensions was 35%. We also analyse the pension gap for our clients and we see gaps of around 30% amongst our client base and have seen cases where this can be 50% and even higher. For those that are relying solely on DC for their pensions, the latest research from DWP found that the gap here was actually higher than 35% quoted, and we're actually seeing gender pension gap in DC provision of around 60%. I found that statistic quite shocking when I read it at first, to be honest, um, potentially very significant for some. Um, but I think it's also worth drawing out that we see this as a family planning issue and the amount of money that you'll have as a family in retirement. Just to give an example, um, ahead of having a baby, parents often think long and hard about how much time to take off um, while still being able to afford the essentials like nappies and, and the increasing cost of nursery. But I'd argue that many don't necessarily consider the impact that those decisions can have on when they can retire. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. You've mentioned the gender pay gap a couple of times already today, and it seems like there are some clear links here. So I was wondering, is the gender pensions gap just a consequence of the gender pay gap, or is there a bit more to it than that? Look, absolutely, pay is definitely an issue when it comes to addressing the gender pensions gap. However, it's not the only issue. Some people quite sensibly draw the conclusion that if there's a gender pay gap, then there'll be a gender pensions gap. However, research shows that the gender pensions gap is approximately twice the size of the pay gap. So this to me is a pretty good indicator that there's something other than salary at play here. Yeah, and just looking at those other factors um, outside of salary, um, typically we see the main ones being things such as contribution rates uh, and working patterns, So, which Alex mentioned earlier, things such as career breaks and part-time working. But there are other factors influencing it too, such as life expectancy of women being longer than men and pension sharing on divorce. So there are a lot of other things going on here. Okay, so given this seems to be such a big issue, aside from just addressing the pay gap, what else can people do to resolve this? So for me, the immediate focus should be around awareness. This is still a very new issue in the pension space, and it's likely that individuals aren't aware of the gender pensions gap, let alone understand how to go about addressing it. For individuals, this means taking the time to understand how your pension actually works and how it could be affected by certain life decisions you take. For employers, it's more around considering what level of support you can put in place to help employees understand and get to grips with this issue. As a first step, we've been working with clients to help analyse their gender pensions gap within their scheme. We found that by looking at the size of the gap and then the factors causing it, um, then that can really help you to understand the issue and take targeted actions to address it. For example, is it contribution rates between men and women driving your gap? Or the proportion of part-time members? Or is it mostly pay? Then once you understand what's driving that gap, you can take action to try to address it. So this could be things such as financial education to raise awareness, 
doing targeted communications to members most at risk, or looking at wider issues around your scheme structure, which might be causing some of that imbalance. But by understanding the key, uh, the key factors that drive your gender pensions gap, that can really then help you to know where is the best place to start when taking action. Great. Well, thanks to both of you for making the time to come back on today. I've certainly learned a few things from that discussion, and hopefully our listeners have too. Thanks, Ricky. Thanks, Ricky. Okay, that's all for today. So thanks for listening, and thanks again to my guests, Alex Hadanu and Karina Klimaszewski. Assuming the machines don't take control over the next month or so, I'll be back next time with another big milestone for the podcast. Yes, we're finally hitting the big 5-0. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify. If you'd like more information on Aeon's Wealth Solutions, or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aeon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aeon.com.